Well, good morning. I hate to break up your fellowship, but it is time to start. Would you stand to your feet? We introduced a new song last week and had you sing a little bit of it. We're going to sing the whole thing this morning. So join us as we lift up the name of Jesus this morning. Sing with me. There is a name I call in my troubles. There is a word I speak to my fears. There is a power to silence my worries. Let it ring out for the whole world to hear. Jesus, your name is light in the darkness. Hope for the hopeless, strength for the weak. Oh, what a Savior. There's no one greater. Jesus, your name I forever will sing. No other name can carry my burden with just a word. My Jericho falls. No other voice leads me to Savior, amen. If I 
like to welcome each and every one of you to our services this morning. And especially if you are our guest, we thank you for being a part of this worship service this morning. And if you are, uh, we ask that you take a care card that's placed in the pew back in front of you. Uh, there's some information on there, address and things like that, that we would like to have so that we could get back in touch with you to tell you thank you for being a part of our worship service today. So if you would take a moment to do that, that would be wonderful. Also, on the flip side of the care card is a place for anyone to jot down a prayer request that you might have. And we take those very seriously. They're dispersed amongst our staff. And uh, we generally uh, spend time praying for those. So uh, if you have a prayer concern, go ahead and turn that in as well. And you can turn these care cards in uh, on as you leave today on the back wall of the foyer of the lobby. Uh, the lobby of the sanctuary is giving boxes. And you can put those cards in there or you can uh, give them to one of our, our staff people as well. So, but thank you for being a part of our worship service today. Um, again, in an effort to sort of streamline our announcements, um, I'm going to mention a few things that are pertinent for this week. Um, but also, if you would take time to scan the QR code, uh, that's one way that you can stay abreast of what's going on here at the church or sign up for our our email blast that goes out each week that's a great way as well and then you can also get the hard copy of the february newsletter at the welcome desk those are just uh, really good ways to stay in touch with what's going on here at pitts baptist church uh, but since there are a, a few things that's beginning this week and some deadlines i do want to mention a couple of things ladies uh, the tickets for your spring event go on sale today um, the title for that event is living abundantly and uh, that's going to be on March the 14th at 6.30 in the core. Uh, if you have any more questions about that, regarding that, please see Miss Connie. But those tickets go on sale today through March the 10th. Also, ladies, uh, if you're a part of the, the, the Bible recap um, class, uh, your gathering is going to be meeting this Thursday at 10.30 or at 6 in the Small Fellowship Hall. Uh, be ready to discuss days 38 through 52. Uh, our our church-wide retreat is sort of is open to anybody. Uh, it's the Team Valley Ranch Family Retreat. Anybody is welcome to go on that. Uh, today is the deadline for the deposit, um, and you need to see Amanda Christian if you have more questions about that. But I would love to talk to, with you about it as well. It's just a super uh, fun time to be with family, enjoy some good food, some good Bible teaching. Uh, so, like I said, anyone is welcome to come to that. I think that would be a worthy use of your time. The Sewing Hands Ministry will meet this Saturday from 930 to 1 in the core activity room. And your project is going to be making pillowcases uh, for the Malawi mission trip that is coming up later this year. If you have any questions about this ministry, please see Carla Setzer or Pat Connor. Um, our Grief Share Ministry uh, we'll be hosting a loss of spouse seminar this Tuesday from 9.30 to 11.30 in the Small Fellowship Hall. The cost for the event is just $5. Uh, so if, if you yourself or know someone that could benefit from that, please make preparations to be here. The actual Grief Share course uh, will begin February 27th and meet on Tuesdays through May 21st. Uh, the cost for that course is $20. Uh, please see Linda Bounds if you have any more questions regarding that ministry. Um, this week in Master Life, 
we've been studying the importance of sharing our faith and how to share it effectively. Uh, we've learned the importance of bearing inner and outer fruit, uh, the truth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. We've learned how to tell our story. We've learned how to tell the story of Jesus. Um, so I hope and pray, and one day this week, it asked, you know, who have you shared Christ with? I hope that uh, all of us in this room are able to put some names in, in that area. If not, maybe the Lord is bringing to uh, your mind right now uh, some people that, that he wants you to share your story with. We all have a story of how we came to faith in Christ, if we indeed have come to faith in Christ. So uh, it was a great week in, in Master of Life today. I know that you got a, a lot out of it. Uh, and our memory verse is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And we're going to recite that together, beginning and ending with the reference. Let's read together. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Let's pray together. When we are so thankful and so grateful for this wonderful promise that if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus and confess him as Lord and Savior, confess him as your son, confess the fact that he died for our sins and that he rose again, we will be saved. Lord, we also know that your word teaches us in Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, I'm sure there are many, many people in this room who have called on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. And we just say simply, thank you for saving our souls. But Lord, I would be remiss to not pray for those in this room that may have not have prayed that. And God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, you convict them of their sin and they see their need for Jesus as their Savior. And God, by faith this morning, I pray that they embrace the very fact that Jesus died for them, that they too could have eternal life. Speak into their heart and to their life, God, I pray. And Lord, for us who uh, are believers, but Lord, sometimes may struggle in sharing our faith, I pray that that we've found encouragement this week in sharing our story of how we once were lost, how we were once blind. But by the, by the power of the Lord Jesus and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you allowed us to see our need for you and the truth of the gospel. And we called out to you for salvation. And Father, because of that, we have a story to tell. God, I pray that... Um, as we listen to the sermon that you've given to our pastor today, Lord, that we would be more ready, more available to share our story with those around us, that we would truly look at people and see them as an eternal soul, knowing, God, that they will spend eternity in either one of two places. That's with you in a place that you teach about in the Bible called heaven, or in a place that the Bible teaches about also, in a place called hell, eternal separation from you. God, I pray that we would not be apathetic toward people's souls, but God, that we would be
be willing and ready to share our story with them. God, I pray that uh, every aspect of this service, the singing, the preaching, the praying, Lord, the learning, all of it would be done to the praise and to the honor of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter. Victory, since curse has lost its grip on me. 
classic song with me as we commit ourselves to sharing the love of Christ with those around us. You know these words. Sing it with me. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty Of love, 
Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 17. I want us to look at a passage uh, today that was mentioned uh, just briefly in our unit this week, unit 11. And I want to speak this morning on being his witness from Acts 17, Paul's uh, stay there in the city of Athens. Now, folks, I realize something. Uh, Very few among us feel like we're probably called to be evangelists. But I think all of us recognize we we need to do better at sharing our faith than what we typically do. Hopefully, as a result of this week, you'll take just baby steps in the right direction. And you know what? As you, as you do so and you, you share your faith with, with people, um, you may have a door slammed in your face. I've had that experience right around here, a door slammed in your face. Uh, but you know what? You just move on. And it makes it worthwhile when somebody else says, yes, share more with me about Christ. And you have the opportunity to lead that person to faith in Christ. I think we all realize we need to do a little better uh, in this regard. And so let's read about Paul's experience this morning in the city of Athens. If you would take your copy of the scripture and stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word. Uh, Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, and beginning there uh, in verse 16. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 34. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols... The, the phrase here is very interesting. Literally, he saw the city covered over or underneath idols. The picture that they were literally buried under a host of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person, persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler, literally seed picker, what does this seed picker wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, 
made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, I think of an occasion in the Old Testament a situation that happened there with a man by the name of Elijah. I think we all remember the story of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. You may recall that Ahab and Jezebel were in power. And Jezebel had brought Baalism into Israel to a degree that the nation had not seen before. And under Jezebel's leadership, Baalism really became the government-sanctioned religion. Hard to believe something like that was going on in Israel, but that's what these ungodly leaders had brought into the land. Well, we see in the book of 1 Kings that God's patience had reached a limit. And what did God do? God raised up a prophet to confront them. He raised up Elijah. Elijah pretty well said, let's meet at Mount Carmel and let's have a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And we all know what happened. The prophets of Baal called upon Baal all day long to send fire down from heaven because they had said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the prophets of Baal had danced around and cut themselves and prayed and cried out to Baal all day long and, and nothing had happened. And Elijah began, began mocking them. Maybe, maybe Baal is asleep or something. You know? but, but then the scripture says, Elijah called on Yahweh and fire from heaven fell. Now, in thinking about this text in Acts 17, I couldn't help but draw some parallels between Elijah and the Apostle Paul. Because both men grew absolutely disgusted at the spiritual darkness 
that they had begun to encounter in the culture around them. And so both men confronted their culture with God's word. Now folks, what I want us to see this morning is Christians should grow increasingly uncomfortable with what we see around us today. I mean, we see all the darkness in the world. We see the lostness of men. And we couple that together with the glorious message of salvation that we have in Christ. And you know what? That ought to stir us. That ought to move us to speak up and to be a witness. First thing I want you to see with me this morning. A Christian should be stirred in their heart by the spiritual lostness and darkness in the culture look again at verse 16 it says now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols if we were to follow the narrative in the book of Acts we know that Paul has just come from Berea to Athens You go back a few pages previous to that, he had been at Thessalonica. And there was great opposition among the Jews to the gospel at Thessalonica. And friends at Thessalonica, friends of the Apostle Paul had to get him out of town. And they got him down to Berea. And we're told that at Berea, the, the brethren, this is where Paul and Silas had been sent, they they. they arrived there by night. And we're told that the Bereans were more noble because they were willing to search the scriptures to see if the things that Paul was telling them were true. But then the Jews at Thessalonica who had run him out of town there, they heard that he was at the nearby town of Berea and they got a mob together and they went down to Berea and they stirred up the crowds against Paul down there. So again, what happened? Loyal friends of the apostle Paul had to get him out of town. They had to get him out of Berea and they escorted him to Athens. Now the game plan at Athens was Paul was just going to wait for his traveling companions to arrive before they would hasten on and go to the next place. You see verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was just there to wait. You would think maybe he would wait quietly. But look at what he does. Lord, look at what happens. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. You would think Paul would have been quiet, but no. We know once before, during his first missionary journey, he was stoned. And of course, I don't mean he was drunk or on drugs by saying he was stoned. You know, some people might think that today. No, he was literally stoned with rocks and left for dead. And what was his response? His response was to get up and go right back into the city and keep preaching Jesus. 
Folks, why will a man do something like this? Because of devotion. Because when Paul met the Lord Jesus, everything in his life had changed. He was called, he was converted, he was changed, and he knew he was a man under commission. He was the type of person that could be put in prison for preaching Jesus, and there in the jail cell, he was singing praises to the Lord. That's the type of person he was. And so here he was in Athens, and the Bible says he was provoked by everything he saw. What he saw in the culture stirred his heart. He was in the middle of a culture of spiritual darkness, and it moved him. Now, we know Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world. Uh, And you know what? Athens, I think, illustrates to what great heights of achievement uh, man can ascend to and yet still be ignorant of God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Athens was an example of human knowledge apart from divine revelation. Athens was famous for mathematics. They were the one who laid down many of the principles of, of math, many, many of the terms and the methods. You've heard of Pythagoras. He was of Athens. Arista, Aristarchus uh, set astronomy on its course. Archimedes invented the science of hydrostatics. All of this had happened at Athens and by prominent intellectual scholars there in Athens. Philosophy was virtually a Greek invention. There was Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. They were all from Athens. And Plato and Aristotle have continued to have a profound influence even on Western civilization down to the current day. Aristotle was famed for his philosophy and logic, his physics, his biology, his ethics, and his political science. The Greeks pioneered the way in political science. Liberty, law, democracy, parliament, all of these things originated with Greece. And then there was all the literature of Greece. Maybe the most uh, famous writer, Homer. And in Paul's day, the most famous university in the world, the ancient world back then, was the university at Athens. But folks, what is it that Paul saw? Paul saw that for all of their advancement, for all of their intellectual achievements, Greek civilization was still spiritually bankrupt. They had even populated a local mountain, Mount Olympus, with with gods, all kinds of gods that were made in the image and likeness of men. And the immorality and the savagery of their gods that they worshipped was legendary. And yet for all of this, they had no knowledge of the true way of salvation whatsoever. 800 years of Greek mythology, 500 years of Greek philosophy had come and gone. And God had given human wisdom ample time to demonstrate what it could do. 
And at Athens, Paul saw clearly what it could do. It was foolishness. Philosophy had no answers. Religion was a mockery. And the law could not change the human heart. And the Greek culture had slipped into sensuality and idolatry. And so despite all of their wisdom, this is what their culture was like. And they were covered over by idols and graven images. One writer sarcastically said that it was easier to meet a god on the main street of Athens than it was to meet a man. They had an idol for everything conceivable. And again, as I I pointed out, the word when he says Paul saw that the city was full of idols, it it literally means they were buried beneath a load uh, of, of idols. And there was Paul strolling about this city and seeing all of this. He was witnessing all of this. You know, it's a commentary on what he wrote in Romans chapter 1. He said, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what Paul was witnessing there in Athens. And verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked. Sometimes that was used as a medical term. When when somebody would have such such an intense reaction to something that they would literally even have a seizure. The only other time the word occurs in the New Testament is in the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says love is not provoked. It was used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures of when God was provoked and angered by the idolatry of his people. It refers to a sharp emotional disturbance. Something that comes to mind, I I think in Luke 19, is when Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and he was stirred in his spirit, he was provoked, and he wept over the city. That's the type of response the Apostle Paul had. Folks, I think it's time that Christians in this country react a little bit more like that with everything we see going on around us. Corruption, darkness, spiritual lostness everywhere. Rampant crime, theft. Pornography is one of the main multi, multi, multi billion dollar businesses in the country. I've read takes in more money every year than than Amazon, Apple, uh, ExxonMobil. All of these combined. There's drug addiction. Speaking to one of the officers out here at church at the break room just the other day, he was talking about all the influx of drugs and fentanyl and, and how an officer, if they're not careful, if, if they're uh, 
frisking somebody and, and they're emptying their pockets and they just hold this stuff. How an officer can get an overdose. And he said, Pastor, now there's a drug coming on the scene that's 10 to 20 times more powerful even than fentanyl. And we're seeing such an explosion of that. Talk to Hannah Arrowwood sometime about all the sex trafficking in this area. And girls, because of puberty moving back earlier and earlier, 11-year-old girls becoming pregnant. Elementary kids with their phones addicted to pornography. I mean, I could go on and on with all this stuff. How did we even get here? How did we get where we are today? I think we would have to say, just as Jeremiah the prophet said, the foundations have been destroyed. And we're seeing this all around us. What's it going to take to move the church to action? We're just not shocked anymore. Somebody said, you know, things are happening today that years ago would have shocked the worst of sinners. But today these same things don't even surprise the best of saints. We're just not surprised anymore. And like a frog in the kettle, where the heat's turned up gradually, we're, we're just kind of being boiled. I mean, it's, it's just, we, we're growing accustomed to all of this. But as Paul walked around Athens and saw all of this, he was so provoked, he knew he couldn't stay silent. And you know, elsewhere he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul was so deeply burdened and provoked by what he saw, his heart was grieved, it shook him to his foundation. And again, I think we need... We need to open our eyes and be shaken a little more with, with the extent of the darkness that we're seeing around us today. And it's an opportunity for Christians to shine the light. Rather than just grow accustomed to the darkness, to, to shine the light and shine it up brighter. And that's the second thing I want you to see. A Christian should not be ashamed to speak up and share their convictions. Hey, everybody else shares their convictions. Why not us? Now, first off here, though, let me, uh, let me say we need to know what our convictions are. Our, our writers this week shared some statistics about American Christians that, that uh, some have asked me to clarify. Uh, and I, I, I mention this because some of what the writer said bothered a, f a few of you, and rightly so. I think I know what our writers meant to say. I, I think it would have been better to have said people in America who identify as Christian. Or maybe they should have said professing Christians. Because what they said was 66% of American Christians say there are multiple ways to heaven. I would question where they're... All of those 66% are even genuine Christians to say there's many ways to heaven. Likewise, they mentioned 70% disagree with Jesus being the only way to God. Those are not even Christian convictions. So I think it would have been better had they said professing Christians rather than to say Christians. 
or at bare minimum, maybe they should have said baby Christians who have never been schooled adequately on Christian doctrine. They've never been discipled. But what all this says to me as Christians, first of all, we need to know what biblical Christian convictions truly are. Do we even know what basic biblical orthodox convictions even are we need to know and we know we need to know where they're rooted they're rooted in the scripture Paul's convictions were certainly rooted in the scripture he knew scripture better than most and because he was such a man of conviction he was stirred to action now we on the other hand we might come to church get all fired up and say amen and then go home and nothing changes Or we might talk about all those pagans out there and then we do nothing about it. Paul was stirred like Elijah the prophet and he knew that he finally had to say something. He had to do something. And what he did was share about Jesus. He he bore witness to the truth. And I want you to see how he did that. First of all, he did that with those that God brought to him. In verse 17 it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. We think in terms of missions going over there somewhere else. But folks, what we need to realize, each of us have a mission field at our fingertips. Every one of us has a circle of influence with certain people. And your circle of influence will be different than your neighbors on the pew next to you this morning, probably. And we all need to start praying for those that God brings into our lives and across our paths every single day. Folks, that's where our mission field begins. Those around us every single day to begin praying for them and asking God for opportunities with those people that we have daily relationships with. People at school, people at work, people in our neighborhood. It's those that God puts in our path every day right now. You don't even have to go anywhere. They're just there in your life day in and day out. And you've already got a lot in common with them. Paul had a lot in common already with with these Jews and devout persons in the synagogue. There was a lot of common ground in the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul began with that group. I don't think it's any accident in Acts 1-8 when Jesus said we were to be witnesses. He said witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth. Where were they when he said that? They were in Jerusalem. Start there. Start with those circles of influence around you. And ask God to help you see them the way Jesus sees them. And have a burden for those people. That's what Paul did. He started with them. But then he also went to where the people were. Verse 17 goes on to say, out in the marketplace. He went out there to meet with people. You know, there was a day and preach some of you senior citizens in, in the church here. Remember days you could, you could put a revival sign out, out on the front campus 
front lawn of the church campus and say, y'all come and announce dates and, and people in the community would probably come. They don't do that anymore. We have to go and tell instead of expecting that they'll just come and hear. Paul went out into the marketplace to tell. And I tell you what, he bumped into some tough cookies there. Verse 18 talks about Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans followed the teachings of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who had lived from 342 B.C. to 270 B.C. And the basic tenets that they followed were that the world had happened by chance. If there are gods, they are remote and they're distant and they're not at all interested whatsoever in the affairs of men. The Epicureans tended to deny any kind of afterlife. They said when you die, you die, you just become fertilizer for the earth. And consequently they lived for pleasure. Pleasure was their chief end of life. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you may die. It was a philosophy of materialism and despair. Just live for the here and now. How would you like to witness to a group like that? Well, they're still out there today. And then there's the Stoics Paul bumped into. They followed the teachings of Zeno, who lived from 333 B.C. to 264. They were pantheistic. God is everything and everything is God. They, they believed in a fiery spirit, the energy of everything, and sort of everything and everyone is God. And God's like this big, huge flame. And, and when you die, you're just a little spark that's reabsorbed into this flame. And, and there's nothingness that becomes of you. Fatalistic. Whatever happens is supposed to happen. There's no good, no evil in the world. Everything is exactly as it's supposed to be. Folks, that was Paul's audience. That was the people he bumped into in the marketplace. People say today, we've got a tough crowd. We do. There was a tough crowd back then. In verse 18, they call Paul a babbler. Of all the charges they leveled against him, a, a babbler, literally a seed picker. It's the image of a bird who will go over here and pick up some seed, then run over here and pick up some seed, and run over here and pick up some seed. And that's what they're accusing Paul of spiritually. Paul, you've just, you've kind of got combined, you've kind of run over here to get some of your convictions over here, over here, and just picked up little dabs, and that's what you're preaching. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black, because that's exactly what the Greeks had done religiously. It just goes to show you how interesting it can be how the darkness responds. You know, today right is wrong, and wrong is right. And they might accuse you of anything and everything. They might accuse you as a, a Christian of doing the very things they're doing. They're even accusing Paul of proclaiming strange demons because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Folks, they're on dangerous ground here. But what they decide to do, they decide to take Paul to the Areopagus, which was both a place like the town, the place where the town council met, and it was sort of the name of the town, town council as well. It was, it was the people who ruled. 
and they take him there so they can uh, hear Paul out. They put him in a court-like setting. They want to they interrogate him. They want to know more fully what it is that he's brought to their town. What is it that you're telling our people? And we want to judge what you're saying. And you know, it kind of reminds me of what Jesus said. They're going to haul you before courts and authorities. And don't worry about what you're going to say at that moment because I'm going to give you the words to say. I mean, this was a great opportunity for Paul. And notice what he did. He preached Jesus. And notice how he did it. He first found some common ground. He talks to them about being religious. Boy, they could relate to that. All these idols and how they've sought God in futile ways. In fact, just in case they've missed a God out there, they've set up an altar to an unknown God. Because they don't want to offend some deity that's out there that they've not named. Can you imagine being so idolatrous that you finally set up an altar like that? If you're some God that's out there, we don't want to neglect you. Here's your altar. Sounds like the PC environment we're in today, right? And in verse 23, you'll notice he starts telling them the good news. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He wants them to first, he goes on to talk about just, you need to think what you're doing. You need to see how absurd it is that the God of the universe can dwell in temples or be served by, by man-made idols. He's appealing here to their intelligence. I can imagine Paul saying, folks, just think about this. It's he who made us, not we him. He gives life to us, not vice versa. Do you think the God who made the universe and everything in it can somehow or another be contained in some little idol or some little building? Of course not. You know, the Bible reveals powerful and convincing evidence for God's existence. Paul's sort of talking about all this in his own way. And he's also rebuking their pride. Saying, you know, we all came from one human pair. God, God's the creator of all men. He, he's only the father of those who are in his family through faith in his son. But he's the creator of all of us. And furthermore, he's the one that's determined the boundaries of nations. God's the one who has established all of this, nations and boundaries. In Genesis 11, we, we see where men were trying to ignore boundaries and come together as one. And what did God do? God scattered them. Ironically, what do we have people doing today? Trying to destroy boundaries again. Paul's wanting them to understand all this and he's wanting them to see the glory and splendor and magnificence of the true God as opposed to all of these dumb and deaf idols they've made. Folks, the glory of God should cause men to want to seek him. And the good news is, as Paul says in verse 27, he's not very far from any of us. And unlike these Greek gods they were worshiping who were distant and didn't care about man, God is close. He's concerned. He cares. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then the really good news in verse 30, Paul says, you know what? God has overlooked the times of ignorance. Aren't you glad in your own life God overlooked all of those years of ignorance you had in your life? Aren't you thankful for that? So again, in just a very reasoned, calculated way, Paul is presenting Christ. But then thirdly, I want you to see, a Christian should be clear drawing the net. Look at verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul didn't beat around the bush. Paul didn't philosophize with them. He gave them an outright invitation to come to Christ. And he tells them, now's the time to repent. Whatever you've done in your life, wherever you've been spiritually, whatever darkness you've been walking in, you know what? God, God's willing to overlook that. Your times of ignorance, but what you've got to do is you've got to repent and you've got to come to Jesus now. That's the invitation he gives. And that's an invitation still going to people today. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. But God knows. And Scripture says He overlooks those times of ignorance. So what's He calling on you to do right now? Repent and come to His Son before it's too late. Because he goes on, Paul goes on to say, God's fixed a day of judgment. You're going to have to stand before Him one day in judgment. And you know what? If the judge is dead... Court has to shut down, but court's in session. Why? Because the judge is alive. Uh, God raised him from the dead. So again, you need to come to him. Repent and come to him. Paul preaches. He draws the net. He calls for a decision. And you know what? As we witness to people around us, we can ask God for wisdom and how quickly to do this. There's some you might be talking to at work, may, may take a long time, they're not ready. But there may be some others you know right now, you need to be calling the net, uh, drawing the net rather. <clears throat> Look at their response, verse 32 and following. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You know, the Bible is so contemporary because this is still the response we see today. Do you know why... Why we often don't say anything, we're afraid that people won't believe or they'll mock us in some way. Folks, that's no different from what happened with Paul here. Some mocked him and some wouldn't believe. But you know what? Others did. Scripture talks about this. Jesus told parables about this. He told a parable about how a farmer went out to sow seed. And what was this seed? The Word of God. And Jesus said, as you sow some seed, what's going to happen? It's going to fall on hard soil. Doesn't penetrate. And birds come and carry it off. 
And Jesus said that's like the evil one who takes that seed off of a hard heart and it doesn't even penetrate. Other seed will fall on shallow soil. There's no root in it. Somebody that doesn't count the cost of being a true disciple. They might make a quick emotional response that doesn't last because they're never truly converted to begin with. He, he told the third scenario of seed falling on ground where, where thorns and weeds come up and choke out that seed. It doesn't produce any fruit. Again, uh, Jesus isn't saying there's different legitimate responses to the God. Those were illegitimate responses. But he said some seed will fall on good soil. And it'll bear fruit. Fruit at different levels, but it'll bear fruit. That's what happens when we share. That's what happened when Paul and the other apostles shared the gospel. Sometimes we don't share because we say, you know what? Some people won't believe. You know what? You're right. Some people won't believe. But some people will. Some people will. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a tiny little mustard seed that begins small, grows into a huge plant. plant. There's the parable of the dragnet, a net that's thrown out. All kinds of, of fish are gathered in, some clean and, 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 and some unclean. Don't be surprised at the people who reject your witness. Instead, be encouraged by those who will receive your witness. Notice what Paul did. He did what he could. Verse 33. He moved on. He went out from their midst. You know what that shows us? <clears throat> God is in charge of the harvest. Not you and me. My job and your job, just like the Apostle Paul's, is to plant the seed. And you know what? Somebody else may come along and, and water. But who is it that gives the increase? It's God that, gets, that gives the increase. And God gets the glory. You know, it became so popular at one time, years ago, to say that Paul, to try to say Paul failed at Athens. The criticism was that he tried to reason with the Athenians based on their own philosophy and he failed. And that's why when Paul went to Corinth next, he said that he determined to know nothing about, nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. In other words, some scholars used to say Paul failed at Athens, so when he went to Corinth, he just decided he'd preach simple little basic messages on the cross. But there's some problems with that criticism. First, Luke doesn't give us the impression at all that Paul failed at Athens. Some men believe. We're not told how many. We're told that some. And also there's a danger that a danger of believing that a Christian witness only succeeds if you have a large number of com, uh, converts. But if we use that logic, we would have to conclude that even Jesus himself failed on many occasions. Also, there's the faulty assumption that Paul didn't preach the cross at Athens. Folks, we're not told his whole sermon. Because he preached the resurrection, we can assume that he preached along with the resurrection what came before the resurrection, the cross. 
And so this idea that used to go around that Paul failed at Athens, that, that's on pretty shaky grounds. Plus, you know what? I don't think the converts at Athens would think Paul failed. And some of them were named here, Dionysius, Damaris, and others. And where are they today? They're in glory. They're with the Lord. Couldn't you see it today? There goes Dionysius. Dionysius, where are you going? I'm going with some of the angels to welcome another weary traveler home. Jesus just got his mansion ready today, and he's about to arrive. Well, Dionysius, have you seen Paul lately? Have I seen him lately? What are you talking about? I thank him every day for coming to Athens and being faithful to tell me about Jesus. Paul preached the gospel, he drew the net, and some believed. God saves souls. Again, your responsibility and my responsibility is simply to sow the seed and leave the results to God. Being His witness. Some takeaways. First lesson, darkness is everywhere in the world. Darkness is everywhere in the world, it, and it has been since Genesis 3. It's nothing new. Darkness is everywhere in the world, and men try to remedy darkness with religion. Second lesson, this world needs Christians who will take a stand against the darkness and tell about Jesus. Third lesson, Christians need to display enough love and courage to be rejected. And lastly, Christians must simply be obedient and leave the results to God. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this encounter that the Apostle Paul had at Athens and how this has been recorded in Holy Scripture for us to see and to learn about. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts more the way you stirred Paul's heart. He saw corruption, he saw lostness, saw idolatry, and the hopelessness that they had in Athens. And it moved him to share about Jesus. Lord, the Bible is so contemporary when we read it because this is exactly the scenario we're up against today. And God, I pray that you would move our hearts to the point that we decide to do something about it, to be an instrument in your hands. We can't reach everybody, but God, we can reach some. Each one of us can reach some. You've put people in our paths you put people all around us in various relationships. Lord, help us to be missionaries right here at home. As well as going to other places. Stir us. Move us. Help us to see people as Christ sees people. He saw the people coming to him uh, Matthew 9 says, and he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what Jesus said was pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust out more workers into the harvest. Lord, you, you look at the world today and people are like sheep without a shepherd. And your desire is to 
thrust out more workers into the harvest. And that's us. Lord, help us to see people the way you see them and help us to be willing to be instruments in your hands that you send out to tell. May we be found faithful in this. God, I pray that even now there would be people that you would be putting on our hearts. That we need to start being more strategic about sharing the gospel with them. And Lord, help us to get out of our minds being worried about rejection. It's not us they're rejecting, it's you. Help us to be encouraged by the fact that we will be able to reach some. Lord, help us to be your witnesses. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please?